1. T.S. Ashton on the First Industrial Revolution and Rise of the First World's Development The period of British economic history, usually associated with the Industrial Revolution, has been variously dated. Professor T.S. Ashton's The Industrial Revolution, 1760-1830, definitely limits it to the seven decades beginning from 1760 and terminating in 1830, but this is not what is significant about the book. Rather, what is significant is Ashton's account of the series of industrial, economic and social developments that took Britain by stride over the period. These effectively altered the course and history of not only the British Isles, but the entire structure at large of the world's political economy. Ashton begins by charting for us the nature of the earlier forms of industry in the period before the advent of the Industrial Revolution. The picture he paints is of a British economy and society in which the settled cultivator and traditional village craftsman were still the most important industrial producers of goods and services. Every locality had its smiths, bakers, carpenters, tailors and bricklayers and each was both capitalist and worker in the sense of the ownership and use of the means of production. This implied an economy in which demand was localised and therefore seriously constrained. As opportunities for business expansions were thus equally limited, this tended to perpetuate businesses in families, with skills being passed from father to son for generations. In agriculture, the enclosure system had proceeded apace in response to the needs of the market, it led eventually to the concentration of ownership of land in fewer hands and the release of country folk to the cities. In the towns, these landless people began to organise their crafts in guilds, many of those associated with the cotton and textile industry. Over time, the dispersal of industries became ubiquitous, specialised and localised. Certain specific industries came to be concentrated in particular regions. Among these were the mineral industries concerned with mining and extraction of coal, iron, lead, tin and salt. There were also the consumption industries concerned with the manufacture of pottery, glass, soap, paper, sugar, tobacco and beer. The basic feature of all these industries, as with agriculture, is that they were largely the same in terms of scope or scale of production, which was severely limited. Organisation of industry was complex and it varied from place to place. Over time, the capitalist organiser assumed the role of entrepreneur, i.e. the person who made the vital decisions about the quantities and qualities of goods that were to be produced combined with his role generally as the merchant. The manufacturer was usually an artisan who owned considerably less capital than the merchant, but who up to the end of the 18th century preferred to maintain his independence than to be a mere employee of the merchant. He worked on his own premises and employed his own family as well as journeymen and apprentices. In the mining industry, it was the owners of land who controlled the working of the underground seams and drew from them their rents and royalties. Its limits of production were set by difficulties of transport, for ill-made roads were still in place until the construction of highways and canals came to rectify the situation. The same went for the iron and steel industries. Work was irregular. The poor condition of roads and dependence on the vagaries of weather, wind and water for power meant that there were often impediments to the production process. Work environments were far from conducive. Ashton reports that in mining, absenteeism seems to have been at least as common as it is today, that holidays were numerous and that the workers were given to giving their Sundays, Mondays and Tuesday to idleness or sport. This meant they had to work into the night for the rest of the week. Illnesses consequently attended children, who were usually a major part of the labour force. These conditions created periodically sickening aversions to work. They bred various forms of escapism such as drinking, squabbling, gambling or other cheap excitement. Nothing was really idyllic about the industrial relations then. 
In agriculture, many labourers were servants who lived in the farms owned by landlords. Elsewhere, the connection between the worker and the merchant was often remote. The closest ties were those among members of groups who worked together, the company in mining and fishing, chair in glassmaking, and the family in other cases. Except in agriculture, most of the workers were paid by peace. Others received their earnings not from their employers, but from a superior workman. Abuses were rife. There was always some strain in the relationship between workers and employers. It was made worse by the mediated nature of the organisation of production. Among these abuses were mechanisms which placed employees in perpetual bonds of debt to their employers. These controlled the creditorial system and exploited it to weaken the bargaining power of the employees. Also, there was a tendency for employers to spread work lightly over large numbers of workers. The aim was partly to ensure that they would not be short of labour and partly to derive more rents from the lease of work implements 